In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome back to The Napoleonicist. This is going to be one that sort of, in some respects, continues in a couple of veins the, of, of kind of topics and, and areas that we've been looking at before. You listeners have shown a lot of enthusiasm for the sort of forgotten foreign forces elements, as I call them. Um, did a couple of interviews recently with Bob Burnham that went down very well on the Portuguese army. And so we're going to kind of continue with that sort of vein of armies or auxiliary forces in this particular case that worked with the British. But you also seemed to particularly enjoy the episode on the Low Countries that I did very recently with Robin Thomas. So I'm bringing the two together. I'm joined by Paul DeMay, who's the author of We Are Accustomed to Do Our Duty, German Auxiliaries in the British Army, 1793 to 95. So we're going to have a little look at the German campaign and the German auxiliary units who played a key and integral part to the British campaign um, in, in the Low Countries during that period. Little kind of teaser for you folks. Hellion, which is the company that uh, published We Are Accustomed to Do Our Duty, is uh, being very generous and has offered me a discount code that I can pass on to you all. So if you listen to the end of the episode, you will be able to hear that um, little discount code and that will get you 20% off in the week that this goes out. So there's a little incentive for you to listen to the end. Paul, welcome to the Napoleon Assist. It's really good to, to have you on. How are you doing? Hi, Zach. Um, thank you for asking me. I'm okay. As I said just a moment ago, I've got a little bit of a cold, so you may hear me collapsing in a spluttering heap. Hopefully not. Well, if you sneeze down the microphone or something, at least our listeners will know why. Um, and they will also know that I would have been very lazy and would have edited that sneeze out, uh, which Excellent. will be a mark against my name. Um, I want to dive straight into the, the, the 
the whole kind of context of this, if we may, um, with a little bit of scene setting for our listeners, especially for those who won't be familiar with the practices of the British Army prior to this period. Why, why German auxiliaries? Why is there this tradition of German auxiliaries serving in the British Army? Because this isn't new during the Flanders campaign. You think about Hessians particularly having a, a much longer uh, history of service within the British Army. Is it as simple when it comes to the German auxiliaries as the king having connections to Hanover? Or is this specific thing about the auxiliaries during this campaign just part of that wider mercenary tradition of the 18th century? Right, well, there's a fairly wide one to start with. Um, if, if I just step back slightly, because I guess not everybody will be familiar with the way um, the German states uh, operated their military forces in the 18th century. The, um, as I'm sure you're aware, there was no such unified state as Germany during the 18th century. The Holy Roman Empire had hundreds of states which were mostly very small. And although uh, Austria and Prussia dominated, um, it was designed as a, with lots of checks and balances. So the emperor couldn't declare war without the um, approval of the Reichstag, which was the parliament. Um, the, the emperor was always, almost always a, the ruler of Austria, but between 1742 and five, the Bavarian elector um, took the post as, as he ruled as Karl VII. Okay, so that's a little bit of background. The empire was divided into 10 circles, which or in German Reichskreise, which included the majority of the states of the empire. And one of its key functions was to organize a common defensive structure, which to be, um, still remained largely as it had been set up in 1681, although obviously there have been territorial changes since then and so on. And each circle was required to make a contribution in men or money to maintain a, Reichs a Reichsarmee uh, under unified command with a basic strength, which they called a simplum, of 12,000 cavalry and, or 28,000, and sorry, and 28,000 infantry. But it could be a increased to a multiple of that and typically a triplum or triple quota. Now, in addition to their contingents to the Reichsarmee, the major states kept their own separate forces, but this was way beyond the means of many of the smaller states, which struggled to maintain even their basic quarter. And a number of the medium-sized and smaller states had developed a, a soldier trade, as it was called, or Soldatenhandel in German, which um, had built up during the latter part of the 17th and throughout the 18th century. And that enabled, under that, that soldier trade, they would hire contingents to larger powers. So your question, is it part of a wider tradition? Yes, this idea of hiring contingents to major powers was nothing new. Um, the motivation of it, it was quite complex. Apart from the financial benefit, it enabled them to maintain larger forces than their own resources would allow, which in turn enabled them to take a more active role in international relations. So they could um, seek powerful support for their um, political aspirations. And a, a typical example of that is the Landgraf of uh, Hessen-Kassel, who was very keen to be promoted to the status of elector, one of the small group of princes in the empire who actually elected the empire. And it also enabled them 
to uh, have a modicum of protection from their um, fairly um, ag aggressive neighbours. And in addition to that, they would organise local militias for home defence. Now, Hesse Castle is the best example of this, I think. Um, it had the highest proportion of its population in the army and militia of any state in Europe, even higher than Prussia um, during the 18th century. And to give an idea of uh, how these treaties were set up, they between 1677 and 1787, they had 32 treaties with various different powers, uh, of which half were with Britain. So there was a long-standing tradition of Britain taking troops from Hesse Castle, uh, but also with Denmark, Spain, the Venetian Republic, the United Provinces, the Holy Roman Emperor, and Prussia. And at one stage, it even provided troops to both sides, which was during the War of the uh, Austrian Succession, where it had treaties with Britain and the Emperor, who, as I've said at this time, was the um, Bavarian elector. So that's the background on one side. So you've got a willing seller. On the other side of it, Britain, Britain's parliament had been very, as all, well, ever since the um, period going back to the Civil War, had been reluctant to main substantial uh, armed forces in peacetime. So whenever an emergency arose, they had to find another source of troops. And in general, they had gone for German auxiliaries. So German troops played a major part in Britain's wars with France during the 18th century on, on the continent. Part of that was to protect Hanover, which since the Union with uh, Union of the, the personal Union from 1714 um, was threatened by other European powers. But it also served in Britain against the Scottish Jacobites in 45, uh, obviously well known for fighting in America, along with Brunswick and other troops. Um, Hanoverian troops this time had um, fought at the great siege of Gibraltar in, um, sent from 1779 to 83. And a little sideline to that is in uh, 19, I'm sorry, no, in uh, but not yet, in around 1900 or so, the Kaiser had actually allowed the successors of the Hanoverian troops who had served in that siege to wear a, a, a special um, band on, cuff title on their tunics with the word Gibraltar on it as a sort of battle honour. And they did that through the First World War. So you've got German troops fighting um, the Tommies um, with a British battle honour on, on their uniforms. And, and also the um, Hanoverians had supplied troops to the British East India Company for service in India. So this idea that German troops were a good way of making up um, Britain's manpower shortages was very, very well established. Since the personal union of the thrones of Great Britain and the electorate of Hanover, um, the first call was for the, on the king's electoral troops, as they called them. Um, the king couldn't just order these troops to just turn out in the same way as sort of British troops would. There had to be a negotiation to um, put, the, put the arrangements in place. And then following that, they would go for subsidy treaties with medium and small-sized German states. And it, dynastic links also played an important part of those. So Landgraf... Um, Wilhelm IX of Hesse-Kassel was a cousin of George III. 
his father had been a uh, son-in-law of George II, and the Duke of Brunswick was George III's brother-in-law. So at the same time as you've got the German states keen to find wealthy clients for their troops, you've got Britain who needs those troops to, um, take, to deal with situations that arose for which it was ill-prepared, and the war with France that broke out with as far as Britain was concerned, in 1793, was just such a case. I just want to pause there and marvel at what our listeners have just enjoyed. That's a run through of a good kind of couple of centuries of German history and kind of formation of, of German forces, which was quite something to behold. So thank you for that, Paul. I want to just kind of chip in and, uh, at a very obvious follow up to this, which is about that process of negotiation that you're talking about um because presumably that's quite complex but also this is a time sensitive issue in relation to the revolutionary wars you know you need these troops asap because there is now an emergency on the continent and so you know you you need to get all of that squared away and then get the troops recruited and, and all of it sorted so can you kind of talk us through that process of negotiation how does it work okay the situation with Hanover is rather different than with the other states, as you would expect. And even before um, hostilities had broken out, discussions had, had started. It was clear to everybody that war was coming. Uh, and so the king had had discussions in early 93 to engage 13,000 Hanoverian troops. Um, the main purpose of the main objective at the British at this stage was to protect the United Provinces, what's now the Netherlands, because um, the French had overrun the Austrian Netherlands, now Belgium, and Britain had an alliance with the Austrian Netherlands, and they were just as badly prepared as Britain was and were calling out for assistance from Britain. So the first thing that they did, having sort of started the ball rolling in terms of putting out failures, was to um, Lieutenant General Sir William Fawcett, who was the Adjutant General to the forces, was instructed to finalise negotiations for for the Hanoverian troops with the Hanoverian representatives. And the composition of the corps and, it, and the arrangements under which they would serve were set out in what were called preliminary articles, which were signed on the 4th of March. It was quite a, an amicable process because it was made clear from the start that um, Britain didn't expect either, either side to make any financial advantage out of the arrangement. It was literally a means of um, reimbursing the Hanoverians for the um, expenses that they would incur. Quite interestingly, Hanover had been mobilizing its troops um, as part of its obligations to the empire, and the Prussians were pushing them to send those troops to the Rhine. But George III had had none none of that. He basically said, we're not required to send troops to your your request. There is no Reichsarmee. The, the empire was still neutral at this stage. Um, we're sending them to the Low Countries to support um, our own interests. And so the final, these preliminary articles were signed on the 4th of March. And what it, they basically didn't say much more than uh, how many troops were to be provided, what regiments were there were to be, 
Um, but it had a couple of interesting clauses. Apart from the um, financial arrangements, which I've, I've mentioned, they, they allowed, um, sorry, they included a stipulation that Hanoverian um, men, who soldiers who became disabled by wounds or other um, bad news, I guess, while in British service, were, were to be allowed pensions. Now, that was quite an unusual arrangement for foreign troops. It wasn't allowed to any of the other contingents, for example. So to an extent, the Hanoverian troops were treated as if they were part of the British military. Although it has to be said, they weren't given the same rates of pay. They were given lower rates of pay. And that caused trouble later on because when the Hanoverian soldiers were told that they were going to um, be taken into British pay, they thought that meant we're going to um, get the same rates, whoopee, big pay rise. When they found out that wasn't the case, uh, a couple of battalions mutinied and the Duke of York had to skedaddle across there to talk to them and explain the situation. So they, the troops were mustered. They, they appointed, sorry, a, a commissary to muster the troops, which basically meant he had to check how many there were, were they uh, according to what had been let, say, let set down in the, in the treaty, were they um, of sound body and all the rest of it. And the chap who they chose was a fellow called Major Gunn, who was sent across to, to do this. He, he actually, to hurry things along, as you've said, time was of the essence, to hurry things along, uh, he mustered them while they were in transit. And the total strength of the Corps was um, just over 14,500 men, which we've got sort of 2,500 cavalry, just over 10,000 infantry, and the rest artillery, trained pioneers, that sort of thing. And they also had, um, just to give an idea of the sort of trail, tail, sorry, that this had, they had 306 bread wagons and all the other sort of wagons as well. And it brought five and a half thousand horses. So for a force of just over 14,000 men, you've got five and a half thousand horses. So it's a, it's a lot of, a lot to, to be getting to. And he, as, as he always did, Gunn was very gushing. Um, he, he said the troops were very fine and the horses. Um, he found their clothing and equipment to be very good. And he finished by praising the artillery, and I'll quote him exactly in this. He said, it exceeds every, everything of the kind I have ever seen for neatness and convenience, even though he noted that the reserve artillery hadn't yet joined the army. So he was quite willing to overflow with praise. An interesting thing about the artillery is the Hanoverians had um, horse artillery, and they actually sent a battery of horse artillery with this contingent. And we'll come on as we talk, to the fact that the French were much better provided with artillery than the British were on this campaign. So these horse artillery were to be particularly useful. As well as the, um, the troops that were, that were to be provided, um, they also specified that a number of Hanoverian officers would be attached to the personal staff of the Duke. And his two younger brothers, Ernest and Augustus, who were serving with the, with the Hanoverian army, and uh, they had a senior adjutant, um, a major of engineers, uh, a couple of aide-de-camp. And so that was sort of all very helpful. You know, they, they tried to think of things. The British, unfortunately, hadn't thought of very much. 
Um, the British had failed to provide a field bakery for the troops. Now, when you think the staple food for the troops was bread, that was quite a, uh, a setback. So they had to negotiate with the Hanoverians to provide um, a, a mobile field, a field bakery sufficient to feed 20,000 men. And that was no small thing in itself. It was at its peak, it had 170 bakers as well as laborers, artificers, I can't even say the word, um, a wagon train and, and so on. And it had 24 ovens and needed 10 wagons to transport it with wag further wagons for tents and implements. And when the uh, army returned in 1795, that was just left behind. So it's uh, pretty bad. And as well as providing the bakery, the Hanoverians also provide the catering arrange, provided the catering arrangements for the Duke of York and his, head, his, his headquarters staff. So they had um, a group of, um, well, what, what Harry Calvert, who was uh, served on the Duke's staff, described as uh, an amazing retinue of cooks and laced footmen. Now, you may be familiar, there's a, a Gilray cartoon that shows the Duke and his officers uh, eating very well and being served by half-staff-looking grenadiers. That food was being prepared for them by these Hanoverian chaps. Okay. So that's the Hanoverians. Once that was out of the way, they turned their attention to Hesse Castle. And the Earl of Elgin, who is the same man who is famous, notorious, depending on your point of view, for the Elgin marbles, um, was sent to negotiate a treaty. And he was given clear instructions of, to what he had to do. But it's, this is quite an important treaty because it forms the basis for the subsequent treaties that they entered into with the other states. It was, it was signed on the 10th of April and it provided for the um, Hessians to provide 8,000 men for a period of, of three years. Uh, in return for an annual subsidy. As well as the annual subsidy, they received um, what they call levy money, which is the cost of setting the thing up, and also the pay and uh, extraordinaries, which means just any miscellaneous expenditure that um, they incurred. They were very keen, the Hessians, sorry, that they shouldn't serve on board fleet or outside of Europe, and will come later to that becoming quite a big issue. They didn't really, they didn't want to go to the West Indies, which was a death trap, or Gibraltar, which wasn't seen as much better. And they were to serve under their own, as a unified force under their own commander. Uh, and it spelt, the treaty said that they should be, um, I'll quote again, completely equipped, furnished with tents and all necessary equipage, in a word, shall be put upon the best possible footing. And each battalion had two field pieces and all the rest of it. They had their own medical services. A, a feature of these treaties is that the princes, the German princes, only had to provide replacements for the numbers described as wanting to complete each spring. So they had to bring it up to strength. But that wouldn't include those who died. Oh, sorry, those who had um, who was with this army, but sick, or who'd been made prisoners of war. So these, these musters were very important. They were, when they were mustered, um, which was delayed because gun 
was also told he had to inspect the Hesse Castle troops. He'd already been appointed to inspect the, the uh, Hanoverians, but he wasn't given his orders until the end of May. And um, they should have been on the move before that. So they actually set off and arrived with the British army, at which point the British had a, a nasty surprise. In spite of this clause about them being completely equipped, it turned out that they'd only brought 30 uh, musket cartridges per man with no reserve whatsoever. And that wasn't an accident. That was deliberate orders by the Landgraf. And they'd only brought 100 round shot rounds of grape shot for each of their battalion guns. So the British had to ferret around to find 600,000 musket cartridges, um, 50,000 carbine cartridges, and 50,000 flints, as well as the, the enough ammunition to bring the artillery up to 300 rounds per gun. So already they're starting to play games a little bit. Needless to say, Gunn was very ecstatic when he reviewed them, thought they were absolutely marvellous. Um, he didn't record the fact that in addition to saving money by not sending any ammunition with them, um, the, the infantry, um, was, who was supposed to have new uniforms every three years and had received the latest ones on the 1st of April, were ordered to leave their new uniforms behind and they turned up to take part in the campaign in worn out old uniforms. None of this was noticed by Major Guns. So you get an idea of how good his, um, his, his inspections were. Um, it, it, just to, again, I mentioned the, number, the amount of um, baggage that the army took with them. The Hesse Castle troops were um, no, no, um, no different than that. An average regiment had about 1,100 fighting men, but that, that regiment would have at least 116 drivers and servants, 231 draft and pack horses, um, two four-horse wagons for the staff, two horse wagons, sorry, two, two horse wagons for the Paychester medical supplies, and a four-horse wagon for each company. So you've got an enormous tail attached to this. And I just thought it's quite amusing. The uh, historian von Ditfort, who wrote the history of this campaign, um, described them as a model of military mobility compared with the Hanoverians in particular. So that's, that's what warfare was like in these days, if you like. You had, you had to carry a lot of stuff with you. They entered into further treaties um, <laughs> yeah. with Hanover and um, Hessen Castle and also entered into tre treaties with Baden, Hesse-Darmstadt and Brunswick. So all in all, they, um, th there's the, you go through the same process several times. And by the end of this, I think we're going to talk about the units and how they acquitted themselves. I think we have to recognise that the, without the German auxiliaries, the Duke of York couldn't have done very much. The Germans were over half of his army, well over half, early on. And it was only in the summer of 1794 that the British made up half of the Duke of York's army. So without the German troops, nothing much could have happened. Let's start talking units, shall we? So, so talk us through some of these units and also their service records in the Low Countries. You know, who are the big movers and shakers? Who are the ones who cover themselves in inverted commas glory 
And who are the ones where people sort of quietly give them a sort of sidelong look and go, hmm, that's not very impressive, is it? Um, well, I think the whole campaign is one where your last comment would probably apply. This um, is true. What I've done is I've just picked um, one example, really, for, for each of the things, because, as I said, the German troops were the majority of the army and they took part in all of the battles. If we talk about the um, Hanoverians, first of all, the, their first big engagement was when they provided the army of observation covering um, the Duke of York's um, siege of um, Dunkirk. And that was commanded by um, Feldmarshal Freitag, who was the commander of the uh, Hanoverian contingent. And he had a mixed force of all the Hanoverian infantry and cavalry. Um, he had 10 squadrons of British cavalry, a couple of battalions of Austrian infantry, um, some Hesse Kassel um, dragoons, and the loyal emigrants who were um, an emigre unit in, in British service. And he was also given the Hesse Kassel Jaegers, who were, um, there were two companies of them. Um, the British didn't really have light troops to speak of at this period. And these guys just performed marvels. They're less than two, fewer than 200 of them. And they're forever popping up. Whenever you read accounts of engagements in the campaign, there's a chap called Capitaine Ox, who always pops up. He's got a habit of attacking uh, massively, uh, it's a bit like a sort of John Wayne Weston. He goes out with his uh, his men, a uh, small number of Jaegers, and causes mayhem, captures cannon, does all sorts. He's a bit of a sharp, I suppose. Okay, so the um, force that Freitag had was about 16,000 men, but the countryside that they were sent to cover the um, left flank of the Duke's besieging army was quite broken up. Not quite Bocage sort of thing, but um, lots of hedges and ditches. And a lot of his force was cavalry. He had fewer than 12,000 infantry. That's at the sort of theoretical level. In practice, if you take off the sick and the requirements for other duties, it will be substantially less than that. And at first things went brilliantly. The Duke sort of trawled up to Dunkirk. He didn't have a siege train that hadn't arrived yet. He didn't have um, naval support, and so the Dutch, not the Dutch, sorry, the French were able to sail gunboats out from Dunkirk and shell his uh, entrenchments from the flank, which, an example, you're talking about what doesn't look quite so good. Anyway, Freitag is told, I'm sorry, and what's more than that, the French had uh, inundated the countryside around, so it was that there was a big morass that the British couldn't cross. And on the other side of that, you've got Freitag trying to shield them from the French troops. And the French weren't stupid. They knew what was happening. The British and the uh, Austrians had split up after um, the capture of Valenciennes. And they were getting on for 100 miles apart. So the French had an eye, and they were pinned down in siege, conducting sieges. So the, the question for the French was, who are you going to attack? And they decided they'd drive um, the Duke of York away from, um, from Dunkirk. And rather than do a frontal attack on him, him they thought the best way to do that was to knock his, um, his army, the army of observation that was covering his flank out of the way and force him to retreat. 
So they massed over 45,000 troops with the purpose of driving away um, Freitag. Okay. Um, as I say, Freitag initially um, did very well. He advanced as far as um, Berg. And even though he had no heavy artillery, he summoned it to surrender. And you can imagine the response he got from the French commander. He was told by the Duke of York to forget about that and to concentrate on his job, which was to protect the, the main the siege army. You're aware of what they call the cordon system. He adopted basically spread his forces out over a front of around 30 kilometers. So he's got, I don't know, 10,000 or so infantry and his cavalry trying to cover 30 kilometers when there are 40 odd thousand French mustering, ready, uh, assembling, ready to attack him, which doesn't leave him in a very good position. The French um, launched an attack on the 6th of September. By the evening of the 6th, they'd basically um, overwhelmed um, Freitag's right. And although his left was holding reasonably well, he had to retreat to, um, to avoid being cut off. And during that retreat, Freitag um, was gaily plodding along um, with an escort and he had Prince Adolphus, the son of the br brother of the Duke of York um, and a few other officers with him who came to a village called Rexford, which they thought was in allied hands, but it had been taken by the French. Um, Freitag was wounded and taken prisoner and uh, the prince was briefly captured but managed to get away in the confusion. Luckily, um, Valmoden, who was Freitag's second in command basically, um, took prompt action and, and, and rescued him. But he was in such a bad state after his work. I mean, the guy's in his 70s, he's not a spring chicken. Um, he had to be relieved of the command and go back to the rear to recover. And Valmoden took over the command of the, um, of the contingent. They then had a, the following day, the 7th, where it was all a bit quiet. Um, both sides had uh, been fighting hard and were a bit tired. But on the 8th, um, Jordan, uh, not Jordan, sorry, um, Houchard, who was the French commander, launched a, a frontal attack on Honsud together, together with um, basically a pincer movement on the from the uh, from the his left, and the position that Valmoden was in wasn't very good. Um, he had nowhere to go. It was a, a fairly narrow front, and he was heavily outnumbered. Although Houchard had forty thousand troops, he'd sent half of them off on sort of Mickey Mouse sort of missions, doing all sorts of things. One of which was to go into Dunkirk and sort of reinforce the garrison there. So after. Um, putting up a stiff resistance, he was forced to retreat. Now, during that retreat, um, clearly that left the Duke of York um, completely unprotected. So he had to abandon the siege artillery, which had just arrived. Um, and the French were running riots. If they hadn't been worn out and the, and the countryside so flooded, they could have done a lot better. Uh, and in fact, the failure to do better cost Houchard his head. Um, he was denounced. They, but this was the period when you've got um, representatives of the um, of the convention with the French army, 
uh, he was denounced and um, he was subsequently executed. So didn't end well for him. So that, that, that's basically um, an example of, of what the Hanoverians could achieve. Now, people have been very critical of the Hanoverian infantry in particular. And I'll come on to an element of why that is, because raising the contingent had proven very difficult. And it had only been achieved by stripping troops from the regiments that were left at home, um, doing all the usual things like sending out sort of recruiting parties and so on. But they'd had to sort of force uh, forcibly enlist about 7,000 peasants. So each regiment was largely made up of untried uh, recruits who hadn't been properly trained. And yet at um, Honskirts, where they were heavily outnumbered, they put up, a, as I say, a very stout resistance. And at one stage in the battle, Houchard actually thought he'd lost because he was making no headway. But eventually, um, the, the, the Hanoverians were running out of ammunition and they decided to pull back. If we talk about Hesse Castle, I'll just be very, very brief. While they were busy negotiating all these treaties, the government were coming up with all sorts of plans. They wanted to send troops um, to Toulon, they wanted to send them to the West Coast, they wanted to send troops to um, the West Indies, all sorts. And they, they, they gave um, Major General Earl of Moira, a British officer, uh, a commission to support the um, French rebels in the west of France. And after lots of umming and ahhing, um, a contingent of Hesse Castle troops were sent. And I'll just say briefly how, what happened. This, this contingent, it was basically, um, the, the, the number of men fit for duty who were sent were two and a half thousand. But the embarkation return includes uh, 95 pack horses and wagon drivers, 155 officers' servants, 59 women and 16 children with a, a, over a thousand horses and uh, over a hundred wagons and carts. So they were crammed into transport ships. They set sail on the 1st of January 1794. So the season isn't good for them. Um, the force was being assembled at the Isle of Wight, so they, they sailed to Cowes. But then things didn't happen. The, um, things didn't arise as was expected in the West. They hoped to be able to land these troops and achieve great things. So they were stuck on these ships. And at first they weren't allowed to disembark at all. Then they started to fall sick in a big way. Um, the officers were worried about their horses, so they were trying to sell them off to the locals. Uh, and there was also, well, this is going on, there was a political storm because Parliament didn't like the king introducing foreign troops to British territory. So, had that. They didn't establish a hospital till the 29th of January. And they didn't start putting men into barracks on the island until the 12th of February. And even then, it was only a, a small proportion. Um, because they were getting sick so much, Moira um, kindly ordered that they be given three pints of porter a day to uh, promote their health, which no doubt had a, a very good effect. After all of this, um, the plan was abandoned without achieving a thing. They basically had to leave 
nearly 400 men behind because they were so sick, too sick to travel. Um, and they had to, uh, and, and while they were there, 84 men died, um, as well as um, two soldiers' wives and two children. They're actually buried in the ch local church, and there's a little plaque on the wall that commemorates them. When they came back to, um, to the continent. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. They were really too weak to do anything. Um... So they were sent into Ypres to recover as part of the garrison. And uh, while they were in Ypres, they, along with another Hesed Castle regiment and some Austrians, and, um, were, were captured because the garrison surrendered because it, Ypres was indefensible. So at a time when Britain needs every man it can get, they send the, some of the best troops they've got off to this useless expedition to the Isle of Wight. And, and then they have to be left behind in, um, in, in Ypres, where they're, they're rounded up by the French. Hesse Darmstadt, which I think is a, a, a funny example. Well, not funny, it's a very sad example. Um, which is in part of the Battle of Boxtel in September 94. And insofar as people know about that in British works, it tends to focus on the second day, which is when the Duke of York tried to recover it. But essentially, um, the first day of that battle, you've got um, Hammerstein, who is um, one of the um, Hanoverian generals, with around 10,000 men fit for duty, um, trying to cover um, the, the front of the uh, Allied army. Um, the army wasn't in good shape by now. They'd suffered heavily from sickness. And the Hesse Darmstadt troops, were, who were again amongst the best troops in the army, um, were totally worn down by all the, by their continuous service on advance posts. And they asked to be relieved so that they could um, re recover their strength. Um, the Duke of York replied that uh, in eight to 10 days, he hoped to relieve them. Um, but unfortunately, the French didn't wait for that. They attacked, and the the main force of the attack fell on the village of Boxtel. Now, Boxtel itself had a garrison of around just over a thousand infantry and five hundred cavalry, and they were outnumbered something like twenty to one by the attacking French. 
and they managed to hold them off for a while. But when things, they, they, they were attacked by columns from both sides and also the French were able to cross the river that was in front of them. Uh, and the Allied commanders knew full well that it wasn't a defensible position, but they were left, just let, hung out to dry basically. Um, and the majority of them were forced to surrender. And so basically in that one engage, small engagement, the, uh, Hanover, the Hessen Brigade lost about over 700 men in total out of the, the, the garrison that was there of less than, you know, 1,000, including all the other nationalities. Um, and they lost all their guns and so on. The Duke of York um, is worried about the... Um, French advancing towards him. He sent um, a force to try to recover Boxtel, but he was worried that there must be about 80,000 French facing him. And so he thought, I'm not doing this. He decided to retreat. Um, as part of his um, retreat, he left uh, what was left of the Hesse-Darmstadt infantry in a garrison at Fort Krevka, which is near what the French called bois le duc what the Dutch called Sertogenbos. Um, and they were captured when the French surrendered. So by the end of September, the Hesse-Darmstadt Brigade had virtually ceased to exist. Now, on top of months of hard campaigning and the wound that he'd suffered um, a month or so earlier, it was too much for during the Hesse-Darmstadt commander. And he took his own life um, on the 19th of May, aged 39. So. It's quite insult to injury. The Duke of York issued a secret report to Dundas, which has been picked up and used by Fortescue and subsequent British sources, um, blaming the disaster on the uh, Hesse-Darmstadt troops, who he said um, the attack didn't appear to be very severe and that there was a sudden panic amongst the Darmstadt troops. And he also said that they'd caused confusion and loss to the other um, British, to the other cavalry that were there, which, I mean, basically, I think it's him just covering his backside. But who knows? Okay. What yeah. comes out of all of that is just how incredibly poor, how, you know, kind of how raw a deal these, yeah, these troops awful. have. Um, which leads me on to kind of a, a, a tangential question. Is this a question of, prejudice um because i mean there is this phenomenon later in the napoleonic era of british troops kind of blaming any other nationality other than themselves for anything that goes wrong is that kind of what's happening here or is there more to it there's two aspects um, one is definitely there was a feeling of superiority i mean they um the Duke of York used to blame everybody whenever anything went wrong. Um, he blamed the Austrians for a lot of his problems. Um, nobody had a good word for the poor old Dutch. Um, and the Hanoverian infantry in particular come in for an awful lot of criticism. And you barely pick up um, a British memoir or a, a history of the period that doesn't refer to how useless the Hanoverians were, how fond they were of plunder. And then once you get onto plunder, the Hesse Castle bombs are obviously far worse. They're the biggest plunderers known to mankind. Now they don't mention the fact the British were just as bad. 
And some of it is because the supply system wasn't very good. And some of it was, if you're a poor um, peasant and there are rich pickings about, you're probably going to be tempted. And discipline wasn't so great. Um, there are stories of, um, where is the Duke of York? I, I, there are different views as to how serious he was in stopping um, plundering. But the Hessen Castle officers and NCOs were seen to be actively encouraging it. So there's that. Um, so they are generally very, very abusive about their fighting qualities of their allies. Um, but it cut both ways. It's, re it's seldom that you get um, stories from the other side. A junior officer of the Hessians actually noted it was very difficult to establish friendly relations with the British, partly as a result of difference in language. But he said the main reason was their unsociable attitude to foreigners, which they often expressed in a very conceited way. So they are seen as second-class citizens and to an extent expendable. Now, whether it was a conscious thing or whether it was just, we're the Brits, you know, we're the best, I couldn't say. But you get other examples of where the relations are clearly um, not very good between the troops. Um, one of those is when um, the Allied army is having to retreat out of the United Provinces into Germany during the winter of 1794-5, which was a horrible experience for everybody. It was, it was a very bad winter. The river, the rivers had frozen, and the men were exposed. It was pretty bad. And the Hessians got to a village called Beekbergen um, before, before the British. Uh, they wouldn't let the British in. And it's according to Corporal Brown, one of the Colstein Guards, who left quite a detailed account of the campaign. Um, he said they wouldn't let the British near the fires, and they even put sentries to prevent the inhabitants from selling them alcohol. So there's clearly friction. It doesn't break out into uh, anything that you could really put your finger on as a sort of a major conflict, but there's obviously uh, a feeling on the, on the Hessian side that um, they're not being treated fairly by the by the British. Um, later on, when the British are having a go at the Landgraf for not, they say, not honouring his treaty obligations, he complains very vigorously that his troops had had to bear a more than their fair share of the burden. I mentioned that um, the siege of uh, Ypres, where he lost a number of his regiments, the British didn't put any of their troops into these exposed fortresses. They were garrisoned by Hessian or Hanoverian troops. Some Austrians, to be fair as well, but there was not many, many British troops to be seen. There was one small case where British were taken. So difficult and dangerous jobs tend to be given to the German troops. Another reason for that that partly can be partly put forward in justification is they were better at it. Things like putting out patrols, uh, manning outposts, things like that, they were generally better trained than the British and more adept at performing those duties. And inherently, those duties are quite arduous, particularly in winter, when the troops haven't got proper winter clothing and so on. Does that mm. answer your question? It does, yes. Um, I wish I could say that any of this surprised me, but quite no, frankly, it's, it, it does there's, there's a clear pattern, I think, through history that the British regard themselves as some sort of superior race. And these other poor Johnnies are just 
expendable, I suppose, is pretty well what it boils down to. Yeah, sadly so. And that comes through very clearly from what you've said there. Can we just briefly touch on a few individuals and kind of their experiences? You've mentioned a couple of officers already, um, but also I'm curious about the rank and file. Just give us sort of two or three examples of these people and you know what, what they end up doing there must be some characters in here some people who sort of make you howl with laughter or some oh, kind of yeah. deeply sad and moving stories oh, yeah, there are, as, well. as always in this the um hanoverians i mean i think i think it's interesting just what the british say about the um the commanders the the german commanders were often what were described by herbert taylor as old men now they were generally born in the 1720s or 30s, and so they'd they'd cut the teeth like often in the um, Seven Years' War, or or in the case of the Hessians and Brunswickers in the um, American Wars. So these are these are old men, and naturally they're a bit more cautious. I think a, a particularly sort of an interesting character to me, anyway, is this fellow Freitag who I mentioned. Uh, he'd been born in 1720, so he's already in his 70s by the time this comes on. And he didn't get on with the Duke of York. The Duke of York's in his 20s or early 30s through, through this campaign. And he thought he was a jumped up little whippersnapper, wanted nothing much. Basically, didn't wouldn't have anything much to do with it. So when uh, Oberst Mack, the Austrian General Staff, comes to Brit London in February 1794 to draw up plans for the campaign, one of the things he does is to see the king to persuade him to remove Freitag, which he does, which against his wishes. And um, Valmoden takes over. Valmoden is uh, an illegitimate son of George II, who was probably more of a courtier than a, a hardened soldier. So this chap um, takes over, and he's basically by the, by, by the by the winter he's totally worn out. He's um, he's had enough, and he, he's left behind. And I think this comes out most when the British decide to pull their infantry out in April 1795. They by then the campaign's clearly lost, um, and they leave Falmoden behind to cover Hanover, and. They also decide to send the um, German contingents home, and he's given the dirty job of sorting all of that out. The, I think one of the characters, I think you talked about sort of, it's been mainly sad stuff up to now, I'll give you a bit of happy news. A young whippersnapper called Rudolf von Hammerstein, um, when I say a whippersnapper, he was born, I think, in 1735, so he's not such a whippersnapper, was holed up in Menon in, um, in, in uh, 1794. And he's got a quite small force. He's got something like 2,000 men, um, mainly Hanoverian and some French, some of the loyal emigrants, and then small contingents of elsewhere, of troops from elsewhere. And there's about 14,000 troops have got him totally surrounded. Um, the main Austrian army has been pushed back and he knows he's not going to get relieved. Um, ammunition is, is so short that they had to save it in case there, there was an assault. So he's not provided for a siege and he doesn't know what to do. If he surrenders, 
And the first thing that will happen is the loyal emigrants will be massacred, because that was the um, established practice. And also he was a bit of a, um, a feisty old bugger, if I can use that expression. And it's actually from um, his reaction when he was summoned to surrender that I got the title of the book. Uh, even though he was in an impossible position, he had uh, artillery, um, fire on the town, uh, mortars were being fired at him all through the night and all this sort of gubbins. Um, Moreau, the um, French commander, summoned him to surrender. And he replied, and I think nice words, we're accustomed to do our duty, we will not surrender. Um, the French um, responded by saying they were going to use red hot shot so that not a single house would remain standing. So he, he's got to get out, basically. Um, so on the 29th, he, he holds a council of war and he decides to try and break out the following morning with about 1800 of his men. He left a small force behind. Um, drawn from the, each of the regiments except the emigrants to try and hold this town until um, they were clear. And they had to try and fight their way out. Now, this was no easy task, as you can imagine, but, but they made it. And they fought their way back to the British lines. Now, it, it, he was well assisted in this by another character who famous was Scharnhorst, who um, was an officer of the Hanoverian artillery at this time and was serving as, as, as his chief of staff, basically. And he was very complimentary of all of what, um, all of what he did during, during the breakout. When, when they made it, um, they got a, a very, very good reception. The report that went back to was that, and I quote, nothing like this noble feat of arms has happened in more than half a century. Uh, which probably is a bit over the top, but it was generally recognised that he'd done an amazing job. And for morale, it was important that they'd, it's a bit like Dunkirk in 1940. It was an impossible position. They'd got out from um, from the place, although uh, they'd lost 40% of their men in doing it, but they got out and it was, he was, um, he was praised by everyone from the emperor King, Claire Fate, everybody, they all said what a job he'd done. So there's a sort of a, a happier story. It's nice that Except we have that. Kind of, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> I mean, there is a, an inclination to just sort of, let's see if we can probe a little bit more, but I am conscious of, of time and there are some more questions that I want to kind of... I went on too long, didn't I, on the early bit? <laughs> um, one of the, the big questions, I mean, you've talked about how certain elements are just sort of left behind to cover Hanover and, um, you know, the, some of these men having pretty poor deals. What do we know about the legacy for these men? Do we kind of know what happens to them beyond the end of the campaign in the Low Countries? Is, is it possible to keep tracing them? Not really for the this? rank and file, I'm afraid. Um, the Hanoverians basically went straight into... Um, Onto the, um, do you know, the, when Prussia and France had made peace in April 75, there had been a line of demarcation and neutral and neutrality line between the two, and um, there'd, there'd been long-standing worries about Prussian intentions towards Hanover. Um, the Hanoverians sent uh, what they 
called an observator to work with the Prussians in defending this um, hand of this line of demarcation, and they they did that from 1796 to 1801. So essentially, um, that ties up the Hanoverians. By the end of that period, most of them I've already said they were getting on a bit. Most didn't do much after that. Um, the um, Valmoden, who had become the uh, commander-in-chief of the Hanoverian army, actually negotiated the surrender of Hanover to the French in 1803. That was because nobody else wanted to do it. Um, but essentially, for those older men, that was the end of this, this story. They, um, there were a couple of younger ones. Uh, I mean, the, the Duke of York's younger brothers, who were sort of early 20s, um, did have a, a, a career ahead of them. Ernest Augustus actually became King of Hanover when William IV died because the throne of Hanover couldn't pass to a woman, Queen Victoria. And so when he, he became king in 1837 and the personal union between Britain and Hanover was, was broken then. So he had quite a, a good future, although uh, I'm not saying his reign was particularly successful. And his brother, um, Prince Adolphus, um, didn't do anything quite so grand, but he, um, he became the Duke of Cambridge and various other things. And he had quite a, a sort of a senior role to play as you would expect as a king, a son of the king. Perhaps the, the officer who rose uh, most famous was Scharnhorst. Uh, he'd been a, a, a titular captain, which basically meant he um, had, to, had to carry out the duties of a captain, um, but only got the pay of a lieutenant in the Hanoverian artillery. And then he, was beca he became a staff officer. He then, later on, he entered Prussian service, 1801. And I think it's well known the role he played in um, reshaping the Prussian army after the disaster at Jena Arstedt. Um, fortunately, he died of a wound suffered at Grosgersham in, on, in May 1813. But he's probably, in, in military terms, one of the greatest. You've also got a number of the officers um, who served um, with the Hanoverians who left to join um, the King's German Legion. You've got the Alton brothers, um, the um, Charles and Victor, and um, both rose to be generals in British service. Um, I think Charles more successfully than Victor. Uh, and you've also got Ontada, who rose to be uh, a senior officer in the in the King's German Legion. So these guys, for for people who are interested in the later period, these guys cut their teeth in the campaigns. Um, in the Low Countries. It's a little bit like the Duke of York famously said he learned what not to do. These guys learned an awful lot from, from this service and put it to good service later on in, in, for the British. Um, there are a couple of officers who served in the, um, on the other side um, from the Hessen Castle army. Um, I mentioned this chap, Captain Ox, who was a, commanded a company of Hesse-Castle Jaegers. He went on to become a general in the Westphalian army after um, Napoleon took Hanover, Hesse-Castle and Brunswick to form um, a kingdom for his younger brother. Uh, and he 
um, uh, he, he commanded a brigade in Spain in the Westphalian army and later a division in Russia. So he did quite well for himself. Uh, there's also a fellow called Heinrich von Porbeck, who, as well as being um, an officer in, during the campaign, um, published some very, very useful stuff after it. He wrote a critical history of the campaigns of 94 and 95. And he edited one of these um, scientific journals that were all the rage called Neue Bologna. Um, he entered Baden service and he became, he commanded the Baden contingent in Spain and he was killed at Talavera. So you've got soldiers from um, both fighting, who had previously been um, relatively junior officers during these campaigns, going on to quite senior positions with, with mixed fortunes. It's interesting, isn't it? How, you know, you've almost got a dichotomy here between those whose careers end with this campaign and, and others who go on to become particularly well-known um, within yeah. the, the pantheon. I think for Scharnhorst, it's, he's possibly the best example of this because he was very, very thoughtful. I mean, his, he was a very, very prolific writer. Um, I'll give a plug to uh, another Hellion author. Chuck White has just um, recently published uh, an immensely detailed biography of the early years of Sean Hall's career and how he developed his, his knowledge and his skill. He was a great believer in the importance of uh, officers improving themselves and developing this, this knowledge. And he did it in a practical sense. And he also did it by studying the examples of history and of his, his, his personal experiences. And clearly, he, was a, he became a very, very influential thinker in uh, post-revolutionary wars Germany. I'm keen, just as we sort of start to wrap this up, um, <laughs> folks, don't forget that there is um, a discount code incoming because you've had a flavour of Paul's staggeringly detailed knowledge on this. You're going to want to go and buy the book, so keep listening. I am keen to ask about the sources because this has taken some serious piecing together. I know the research behind this book has particularly been singled out for praise. So I just want to do that kind of nerdy methodology question, really, and ask you to sort of talk us through what you used and how you went about putting it all together. Okay, so, um, for those who do buy the book, they'll be amazed to know there's a 10-page bibliography which lists the sources in extenso. Um, if I just give a, a tiny bit of background, and I'll try not to talk for more than an hour about this, the, um, I've never visited archives before I set out on this. Um, I've been interested in um, military history and particularly the Napoleonic and Revolutionary Wars for donkey's years. But when I retired, which was back in 2011, so it's quite a while ago, I decided to do some work in the archives. And I've always been interested in the German armies. Um, but I didn't really fancy making my first foray into archives in Germany. And I was amazed how much good stuff there is in the British archives. I mean, generally, um, for this being quite an obscure period and a little bit um, specialist, I'll, I'll use that word, um, the National Archives have got an incredible amount of uh, political military correspondence files, strength returns, treasury warrants, maps, and all sorts. And it is amazing how much there is in there about these barely understood campaigns. 
British Library's also got some very, very good stuff. Um, I think the most important thing, as far as I was concerned, is the 12 volumes of the papers of Colonel Don, who had um, been appointed um, Deputy Ad Adjutant General of the forces on the continent in November 94. And those contain absolutely phenomenal amounts of information. There are, it must have kept every piece of paper that ever crossed his desk. You've got returns of sort of bread and forage returns, um, strength returns, you name it. And there are a good number of diaries, order books and officers papers in the Temple Study Centre in the National Army Museum. So the British are archives are a good starting point and if you're not after some nonsense like the German troops you know it's just a gold mine but I wanted to get hold of the German records as well and for a variety of reasons it wasn't feasible for me to visit the German archives but because they've put their catalogues online I was able to seek out documents I was interested in and um, order scans of them which not cheap but it's it's affordable it's certainly more affordable than trying to do an extensive um, research tool without any funding so I, I followed that process with regard to the archives in Darmstadt and Marburg which is the Hesse Darmstadt and Hesse Kassel archives and also the um, Saxon archives for Hanover and again it's the same story you've got monthly strength returns you've got another very useful piece of information which is returns of the equipment that they lost on campaign and the reason they kept those wasn't just for fun the british saw this very much as um, they were more interested in the counting than anything else i think and so they had to submit very very detailed records of all the stuff they'd lost now by seeing what they lost you see what they'd all they'd had previously so it's a very very useful way of of finding information and also you've got um, campaign journals and um, again correspondence files and things like that and if you're even nerdier there's quite a lot about the standards and uniforms of the contingents and so all of that is the backbones of the thing now on top of that there's a lot of primary source material a lot of which is in the British Library and obviously an awful lot available online and I've been a collector of old books for a long time so I've got a fair bit of that and you've got the um, what they call the address calendar for various states which is basically a sort of cross between an almanac and, a, uh, and just general information about the state and typically that has lots of information about the officers in particular regiments when they've been promoted and so on and I, I said that the um, British Library was good the Hanoverian address calendar the run of those is in the British Library so you can you can you can go and see them an awful lot of the soldiers published uh, memoirs and histories of the campaign I've mentioned Paul Beck but any and Scharnhorst must have I don't know I've I've seldom seen such a prolific author as Scharnhorst and their correspondence has either been published in contemporary um, books and magazines or um, more recently um, the collected um, correspondence of Scharnhorst has been printed so there's an awful lot of that sort of thing available and then on secondary sources uh, I'm going to be non-politically correct for a second um, they were definitely not woke in the 19th and early 20th century and it was popular to um, revel in 
former military glories. And so you get um, histories of the different contingents, like von Dittfurt wrote an excellent series of works about the uh, Hesse Kassel troops, Sichart wrote an uh, excellent similar thing about the Hanoverian. You've got umpteen regimental histories, and you've got um, thing called the Österreichische Militärische Zeitschrift, there's another bit of my crap German, um, which was published for a very long period, based largely on the information in the Austrian archives, and then you've got the French staff um, pumping out uh, histories of the various campaigns, both of the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. So throughout the 19th century and early 20th century, this stuff is coming at you from all, all directions. So I had no short, and then of course you've got the more recent stuff by experts and analysts and God knows what. The Great Fortescue talks at great length about these troops. That's, a, that's by way of a ironic comment. Um, but it's a bit like a jigsaw puzzle because you're collecting all this different sorts of information, um, which doesn't always uh, coincide. Um, you've got bits missing and you have to use your judgments um, so there's a, there's a big need to try to corroborate things from a number as many sources as you can. And that's why getting back to the primary sources is so important. What you don't want is to taint that with, I don't know, blogs says it, Jones reads blogs, thinks, oh, blogs is good, I like him, repeats it, uh, and so on. You get sort of myths building. So if you get back to the primary sources, clearly the people still had an angle um, and an axe to grind in many cases. But you're avoiding as much as you can contamination from um, these later sources. There are also some very practical issues. Like it's hard enough reading old documents because the people's handwriting isn't always marvelous and the terminology is sometimes difficult. If you try and decipher contemporary German handwriting, uh, I wish you good luck. It's all, I find it almost unintelligible. I was, I was very helped, very much helped by a friend in Vienna called Michael Wenzel, who helped me with translating it and deci I say de deciphering it. Um, but you've got to use your critical judgment. It's no good just reading it and says, I don't know, sake of argument, Fortescue says that it must be right, or even Scharnhorst says that it must be right. You've got to assess the credibility and you've got to can corroborate it from other sources. And you've got to be prepared to admit that there isn't a definite answer to all the questions. And you've got to be prepared to use your own judgment and say, what is the most likely? And, be, and in the book, I try to do that. I try to say where it's unclear or where there are ambiguities or conflicts of sources, I try to bring that out. And that's a beautiful point at which for us to plug said book um that's that's a very nice bridge thank you very much you've done my job for me there paul um so well, made folks, such a pig's ear of my job but... <laughs> far from it i think people are going to have listened to this have been deeply impressed by the depth of your knowledge and you've given us lots of teasers that people are going to want to go and explore and, and learn more about so we are accustomed to do our duty german auxiliaries in the british army 1793 to 95 it was published by hellion and for all that I do love to shout and scream at people about the need to go and buy direct from Hellion, now I'm actually able to give you an additional incentive beyond supporting independent companies because Hellion have very generously given us a discount code. If you would like to receive 20% off Paul's book, you can do for one week only. And that's one week from the date of broadcast, folks, um, which will be the 26th of May. 
for those of you who are listening later on. So if you quote on checkout on the Hellion website, it won't work anything anywhere else, Demet20, that's D-E-M-E-T, two, zero, D-E-M-E-T, two, zero, you will get 20% off Paul's book. It will be absolutely worth the full price, I hasten to emphasize, but there you go, Hellion being very generous uh, and hopefully encouraging you, if you needed any additional encouragement, to go and buy Paul's book. Paul, massive thank you. Um, we could very easily have sat here for the next three hours and talked about this, and every second of it would have been fascinating. I'm kind of sorry I've had to cut you off and um, sort of chivvy the, the conversation along in places because there's so much of fascinating interest that you, you've opened our eyes up to. Um, no, one question. Can I just say, I was egged on by the fact you've just done a four-hour one, and I was going to try and get into the Guinness Book of Records by beating that, but uh, yeah, I I think some of my listeners would just start paying for my blood if I made every episode uh, four hours long. Um, but look, do come back. What are you working on at the moment? Um, working is a sort of a an interesting term. The project I'm currently allegedly working on is a history of the. Um, campaigns on the Rhine in 1792 and 3. Uh, and that is absolutely jam-packed with nutters. You've got Custine, um, for, la for a large part of the period, the French commander, who is absolutely mad as a hatter. You've got um, his Austrian counterpart, Wurmser, who is um, equally bonkers. And you've got the Duke of Brunswick, who is incredibly cautious, has got the reputation for the finest soldier in Europe, which he doesn't live up to on this campaign, but he, um, he, he's caught in the middle, if you like. And it's, it brings, tries to bring out what it's like fighting a campaign if you're on the French side with increasing political uh, interference. You've got um, increasing numbers of representatives sent out, an increasingly radical government and a large number of the generals end up on the guillotine. Um, on the Allied side, you haven't got that, but you have got Austrians and Prussians who hate each other's guts and won't lift a finger to help each other. You've got, it, it feels a little bit, I was, I was originally gonna, I'm trying to write a book about it and I'm making very, very slow progress, but I was originally gonna call it there and back again, but uh, clearly that's plagiarizing um, the Hobbit. Um, but essentially, they go back and forth across the Rhine and all end up back where they started. But in the meantime, you've got the siege of Mainz, one of the biggest sieges of this period. You've got um, a very uh, spectacular victory where the Austrians overrun the Weissenberg lines, which are seen by the French as being impregnable, and they just march straight through them in one day. A little bit like when the uh, Germans managed to get by the Maginot line. Exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, so, so, and it, it, that is more of a straight campaign history. I mean, this book we've been talking about is two parts, really. The first part is the incredibly arduous process by which the treaties were set up and nearly as complicated and as confused the way they were wound up, and a little bit of snippets of the campaign history. It doesn't set out to be a comprehensive history of the campaign. And then the second part 
is the organization of the different contingents right down to how many men there were in a company how many musicians they had and all this sort of gubbins and then quite a nice little section on the uniforms uh, and then there are various appendices so this one is a, a little bit more if i use the word dry that's a probably uh, a kind way of describing it no not at all um i'm can i just say i'm sold on that history of the, the campaign on the Rhine, please get that written um, because I want to buy it right now. But also- I've done a lot of the work on it. I've, I've, I've actually got off my backside and been to the Austrian archives and the French archives to do a fair amount of digging around in those. But it's a similar sort of idea, the, the way the sources have been pulled together. So, Well, once it is written, do make sure you come back um, and we have to talk about that because that is going to be a, a fascinating topic folks i'm going to say it again you can quote code demet d-e-m-e-t followed by a two and then a zero on checkout at hellion.co.uk in order to get 20 percent off we are accustomed to do our duty german auxiliaries in the german army 1793 to 95 and paul thank you so much for your time this has been a lot of fun Hello again folks, yes I know the usual ever so slightly tedious begging letter. As always, please remember to like and subscribe, little things that make a colossal difference. It's the algorithm that drives how widely these episodes are spread, and your inclination to like the posts on social media, Facebook, Twitter and so on. That willingness to hit the share button, to take that link and copy it into your own social media feeds, those are the kinds of things that make a colossal difference in terms of wider reach and bringing in new people who can enjoy this show. And if you're enjoying it, then it would be great for other people to share that enjoyment with you. So please do take the time to spread the word. I'm conscious that a number of people who, with the best one in the world, I don't even know are being very kind and doing that kind of thing. If you're one of those, then believe me, heartfelt thanks to you. Um, those of you who aren't, if you can spare the time, please do. It, you know, it takes a, a few seconds and a little bit of electricity. It makes a massive difference. Um, but the most important thing, there's a subscribe button. Just whack that and then you'll be able to get live updates whenever the next episode goes out. As you know, this is a show that endeavours to run on a shoestring budget. So if you are willing and able to contribute, either as a one-off, um, or as something kind of more regular, please know that it makes a massive difference. All the funds get reinvested. So none of this is about lining my own pocket. It's all about how can we kind of build the show and uh, look to provide fresh content, um, but also more diverse content. So the big thing that I'm looking at for the future is how to launch a YouTube channel successfully and considering some kind of live stream capability and what that might or might not look like. No promises at this stage. The other thing I would say is that if you want more content, if you're able to um, contribute to the, the Patreon scheme, it does help in terms of trying to reach that goal of ultimately going weekly. That is what I would like to do. Have one of these go out every single week, 52 in a year. But these are huge investments of time, even when an episode isn't four hours long, like some of the ones you've had recently. It, it takes a, a good four hours per episode absolute minimum probably close to six in terms of editing and, and preparation and recording time and so on and so forth obviously i am sitting here playing the world's smallest violin but if you enjoy the show and if you would like more content please do consider whether or not you're able to contribute i know times are hard 
Um, there are links in the description. Go to Patreon if you're considering um, something regular on a, on a monthly basis. The idea with that is that there are different tiers. They start at £1 a month, um, go up all the way up actually to uh, £25 a month for those who are insanely generous. Um, and you get different perks within each tier. So you can get shout-outs within episodes. You can get one-to-one -one meetings with me voting rights to determine themed months. Uh, Marshall patrons, for example, can actually demand episodes. Um, so if any of that is of interest to you, please do consider uh, whether or not you would like to become a patron. Equally, a one-off tip can be made via Ko-fi. Um, and whatever support you're able to offer, I am massively grateful, as I'm sure you know. A particular shout out to my Emperor level patrons, Mark Stoos, JC Kaiser, and Todd and Led Campbell. Equally big shout out to my Marshall patrons, Matt Bone, Marcus Cribb, and Rachel Stark. Huge thanks to my Commander patrons, John Haynes, Gur Brown, Liam Telford, Jane Davis, Bob Burnham, Andy Meakin, Michael Guest, and Graham Swindonbank. And last but by no means least, my mentioned in Dispatches patrons. Mars Reedy, Alexandra Leon, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Beatrice de Graaf, Brendan Teeling, Colin Fieldhouse, Ed Koss, Bruins Girl, Gareth Copeland, Jeff Maple, Hugh Brennan, Indiana Fats, Jim Deary, Jim Getz, Josh Keeney, Lucy Tatner, Lynn Dawson, Mark Dewhurst, Mark Anscombe, Rob Griffith, Rory Muir, Ross Flowers, Ryan Diamond, Rob Coathlin, Mark Trowbridge, Nick Overland, Stephen Colson and Graham Goodwin. Much love to you all. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleonicist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.